The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. I'm Brian Moore and alongside me in the studio today is the former Scotland scrum half, Roy Lawson. Over the course of the show, we'll be speaking to the former Lion, Michael Owen, World Cup winner, Maggie Alfonsi, and Olympic gold medal winning coach, Ben Ryan. Plus, we'll have the all-black Scott Hamilton to give us the other side's view. Right, on with the show. Rory, um, before everyone considered this Lions to um, their set-off, everyone said, this is a ridiculous itinerary. There's a good chance they'll lose all three. Um... Was that did that accord to what you thought? Yeah, going into it, I think everything's based around the test series, isn't it? And when you actually look at the New Zealand franchise and the quality within their squad, uh, you you felt that the Lions would be battered and bruised uh, with it with the six games leading into the first test, and then obviously the the midweek game in between the first and second test. But the Lions proved us all wrong in many ways, and actually, as it turned out, it probably took that long for the squad to really bond yeah. um, and put themselves into a position. And, you know, when you actually break it down, they went on, on tour, played 10, lost four, won four, drew two. Yeah. And it's and you can literally split it down the middle that it is a, it's a drawn tour. And they've, everyone's come out of that tour with a huge amount of credit. I, I tell you, we, we've been doing um, the team behind the team features and we've got another one today. And that just happily coincides with uh, QB Business Insurance, our show sponsors. Um, but on this tour, it's been shown just how advanced that sort of you know approach is behind the scenes now. The way they can measure players, the way they can um, give them a certain amount of time on the field, and they can they can hold them back. And because I thought it was going to be inevitable that you get at least at least four uh, permanent injury replacements, and as it happens, it just happens to be only one your. Unfortunate countryman, um, and Stuart Hogg, yeah. Stuart Hogg, and it's a you know I, I am astounded that that didn't happen and more people weren't weren't crocked. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it, and you know obviously what Warren Gatland spoke about that and the luck that it takes within that. Obviously, there's there's player management between the games and looking after the players, and making sure that people get plenty of rest time and, and look after themselves between the games. But there is also a huge amount of luck. And sadly, Hoggy was on the wrong end of that luck, catching Conor Murray's elbow, um, you know, to, to his cheekbone. But to have him as the only guy who had to leave tour, I guess Ross Moriarty you've got to take into, into consideration as well with yes. his, his back injury that took him out of the latter stages of the tour. But at the same, at the same time, luck played a part. The medics work wonders. Mm-hmm. And actually Sam Warburton touched on it in his, in his post-game interview when he, he spoke about it. It's a squad of 80, essentially. Yes. And the, you know whether it's the medics or the, the coaches or the commercial people or whatever else, it's all those people who play such a huge part yeah. in behind the scenes in, in putting everything in place so that the players just have to worry about going out onto the pitch and performing. Well, we've been, we've been talking in, the, in, the, in these series to some of the uh, backroom staff and, and their day is virtually 6, six till 12 you know, they're working 18-hour days flat out without a break. And they say, well, that's our contribution. You know, and often the the, the game days are the downtime days because they've got one and a half hours where little is going to happen in terms of the whole squad. They might have to deal with it, 
things around around the field. But uh, so it, it it's been a fascinating uh, toy through. But you touched on this. It, it took them that amount of time to get to where they need to be, and the, this leads on to uh, you know to 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 questions. One from uh, Spencer Clark we've got here. Um, will we ever see a ten match Lions tour again? Now, the ten match one is the is a six week one we've just had. There is a proposal from some of the English clubs that it should be cut down to five weeks and eight games. And whilst that only sounds like a small adjustment, there is a major adjustment. Um, and what was I mean? I I've, I'll I'll give my view after yours. But your view of that proposal? Look, I think um, I think the powers of be that are going to uh, are going to make the decision on this. But I think they have to take into consideration every, everything that's just happened. And this the the past tour for all of those who are questioning the Lions' position and in the world rugby scheduling every four years and so on. I, I hope that those have been put to bed. Um, the inter- post-match interviews, uh, it, w- it was great to see Sky grab a hold of the likes of Jamie George after the game and the walk-by and just say, you know, how good has this tour been? And he spoke about the, the fans' influence, the fact he could have his family there, the most special moments for him that he's ever experienced being in and amongst that group. And for me, having, having never been a, a Lion, unfortunately, but having seen the squads grow and develop together, particularly this year, contrasting to 2005, whereby you talk to the majority and there aren't many that would have said they loved every moment of it, that even that would have said they loved the majority of moments. For me, this has rekindled what it is, what Alliance Tour is all about, the, the fans, the sea of red that travelled over there, the way that the New Zealand people bought into it, yeah. I think encapsulated everything good about the Lions. And for me, I, I think looking at it again, logistically around the development of the squad, if you're not going to give time to prepare to go on tour yeah. and the players are going to land four days or five days b- before their first game, I think you have to have a number of games. Now, whether that is 10 games or nine games, I'm not altogether sure. But if you ask the guy, the dirt trackers, as it were, in inverted commas, the guys who have been the midweek players, yeah. whether they would would have been happy playing that role across six weeks rather than five weeks, they want to be there. They yeah. want to be a part of that Lions. And well, albeit they might maybe lost in the final moments of the tour, yeah. it is so important to be a Lion in amongst that squad and have the squad environment. Well, trying to get over to people who who wouldn't understand, and it's not their fault because they've not been there. The thing about the Lions tours is that genuinely everybody believes, or is supposed to believe, that you can make a test challenge from wherever you start. And on every tour, or nearly every tour, that you can name, somebody has proved that right. And on this tour, uh, I would say Anthony Watson, Elliot Daly, Liam Williams, not... Not where not where he ended not that he ended up in the test team, but where he ended up at fullback. That all came from the number of games played and from the performances they put in because that trio and in association with Stuart unfortunately getting injured happened by chance, but it happened out of the form of the games. And if you cut this down, what you effectively will give is each player on that tour will get one game or maybe a game and a half to push their test uh, chances. And a lot of them will feel that's not enough because you can just not perform for whatever reason. You could be picked in a, a combination which you don't think is strong enough, which is not giving you what you consider to be the right chance or as much of a chance as everyone else. And if you do that, 
you're virtually splitting the midweek team away from the test team straight away. And that has significant consequences for the rest of the tour because people who know that they're not likely to get in no matter what they do, they are, it's very difficult to keep them switched on. And it will, it will, although it only sounds a small thing, it will kill the Lions as we know it. And the clubs know this. The English clubs know this. This is, to me, nothing to do other than a, a, a rapacious bid for money. Um, and I understand their arguments about this. They understand that it's in the amateur era and they put all the, the spade work in. They play the, the, the pairs week on week. But this is something which is an anomaly but it works for everyone. And I would simply say to the club owners who are proposing this, if you, if you were responsible for scuppering the lines as we know it, you better be careful because you will not be forgiven uh, by a lot of fans, including English fans. And moreover, a lot of players, if, unless you can hold this to be a, a full um, uh, EPL ban so that no-one breaks ranks, you're going to find... One or two clubs will break ranks, and I bet you in Lions tours or Lions tour years or just before then, there'll be an in, there'll be an influx of players who want to play for the clubs who will release their players, if if not even going on to protocol because it is still for the players. And you you listen to players who have played, players who unfortunately like yourself didn't play, what they wouldn't give to play or, or go back on another tour, and they will not be forgiven by the players either. No, and I think f from a club perspective, you think about the the influence of that tour on the players when they return yeah. to the club. You, you know, you think, you know, Maru Atoji as a young man. And their marketability as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Crowds. I think the, the couple of extra games within there, yeah. the, the eight to ten is significant. When you, yeah. If you're talking about a three-test series... And one game in between the first and second test, you're talking about four games yep. preparing you for a test series. If the Lions went into that test series against the All Blacks off the back of four games, they get torn to shreds, in, yep. in, my, in my opinion. Yes, the Stuart Hogg injury might not have happened. Yes, Ross Moriarty might have had a chance to, mm. to push his, t uh, his test up a case with a couple of outstanding performances. But they're undercooked. And that, for me, is not a fair reflection of the British and Irish Lions, if yeah. they're having to go into a test series of four games. So the first thing for me is the... And it's the, it's the thing that I, as a Scot, feel we would be starved most of by the fact that, you know, Greg Laidlaw was the, there for the whole tour, Tommy Seymour was there for the whole tour. I think if there had been another couple of Scots, even in the midweek squad or even just mm -hmm. with a couple of opportunities, to be in that environment and take that back to a Scottish environment, that is... Immeasurable for me, and well, that would be well, starved actually, that's that. what that's another question that came in. Um, what will the Lions players have learned from each other and from the tour? Um, well, they'll have learned. I, I tell you what, it's, it's strange because you are asked to give your closest rivals and enemies in the five or six nations, um, five as it was, an insight into how you are su successful nationally and. Some players can be very reticent to do this, but to have a genuinely successful Lions tour, you just have to give, and you have to give of of your best, and you have to you have to open up and and technically open up because players are playing with you. you know how you you know certainly in the scrum, for example, you know how players want to pack. You'll know you know how they want to 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 set up, how they go down, what they do and don't like, and it, 
uh, and, and you're exposed to so many different ways because there's a, a homogeneity of, of things within your own national setup, and you can't experience everything um, because it's simply done different ways in other countries. And to get that, it's absolutely invaluable because some things will work and some things won't, but you only need one or two things that really suit you, and you only need to learn that, and you think, I would ne- but, but for going on that tour, I would never have found that out. Yeah, no, I, I think you learn from other players in your position or other positions just what it takes to be the yeah. best. Yeah. I think the fascinating thing is how that kicks on into the next Six Nations, you know, 2018 yeah. Six Nations, whereby you might notice a little chink in someone's armoury. Yeah. Um, but for all the players, I'd say, you know, there are, there are a handful who the tour didn't go their way for whatever reason. They didn't get the performances they need, needed um, early doors to be able to force their case or they actually fell down the, the rungs of the ladder because of the performances weren't... or performances of others were better who went past them. Yeah. Um, but mostly, I would say, the players are going to develop... The, for the Irish, they were the only ones that... the majority within that squad understood what it took to beat the All Blacks. Mm-hmm. None of them understand understood before this tour what it takes to beat the All Blacks in New Zealand. Yes. And I think particularly two years out from a World Cup, the learnings of that are significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, learning from other coaches, you know, from, by all accounts, the, the non-English players within the squad, learning from Steve Borthwick, mm-hmm. particularly around line-out time, a, a lot of guys have spoken a lot about, about about that. For the Scots and Welsh, learning a bit from Andy Farrell, this defensive mm-hmm. system and slotting into that. And obviously around set piece, you know, your Graham Roundtree, mm-hmm. you saw him striding up and down the touchline well, the actually, way that he likes to work. This actually links into a question from Tommy O'Dwyer. He said, do you think successful club coaches should be part of the Lions management? And I was just thinking, not unless there is a very specific reason for them being there, because... The thing about Lions coaching is you have to have a national quality about it. Unless it's a, a, a hugely niche area, you simply need the wider depth of experience to bring international players together because you don't have long to learn. And if you've not had a grounding in international coaching uh, or worked with the international players, I think you're just going to be too narrow in terms of your applicability. What do you think? You know, I I think the international experience has to be there. Um, so certainly, as a if if you're a club coach, and I use probably Gregor Townsend as as an example with this, given that he's just moved from Glasgow to the Scotland role, he was asked to go on the Lions tour as theoretically a club coach, albeit just named as a Scotland coach. But he had been a British Lion. He knew what it was to be a British and, and Lion. And also, let's get it fair: when he's when he's been a club coach, he's he's coached. The vast majority of the Scotland squad. So I mean, of course, you know, he, he, the, I think it's slightly different with uh, with, yeah. with Gregor. With, with, with Gregor, and yeah. but then then I guess it's a you know it's a horses for courses. I think yeah. that the, that's another loss potentially for Scottish rugby, albeit Gregor's taken the Scottish squad to Australia and beaten the Wallabies in Australia. Yeah. That's a, that's a great tick of the box for him and a great chance for him to get his uh, I get I guess his get his, uh, his foot under the table with regards to the Scotland mm. position but at the same time imagine some of the learnings that he would have had on that Lions tour as yep. attack coach yep. in the Lions team against the best team in the world how are you going to pick the defences of the best team in the world to pieces to, to win a test series because eh? what because what you see with there even if you've not got players that can do certain things if you when you work with players who can do that it opens up your eyes to if someone comes along 
with that possibility? You know, it, it, it alters your thinking about how you might approach certain either attacking or defensive situations. And it, it simply is a case of experience being there. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've been stressing when people have been talking and asking me about, you know, why Eddie Jones has been able to kick on so much with the England squad. I said, it's, it's simply because he's had such a lot of experience all around the world to so many situations that, you know, he is, he is aware of what he wants now and what, what's possible and he's looking for players to fit in and he knows how to motivate and it's a simple thing. There's a question here from Tristan uh, Quick. It says, can you see Warren Gatland coaching New Zealand or possibly the Lions again? Well, he was asked that after the game, wasn't he? Yeah. And he, uh, he, he was very careful to avoid the question. But we, we have to take into account, I think the Lions coach will be named in two years yes. for the tw- 2021 tour. So, you know, he, he'll be in a, he's likely to be in a position mm. to do it. You know, we, we saw Graham Henry in the media talking about Warren Gatlin being a, a potential All Blacks coach of the future. And who knows? He's spoken about 2019 very carefully mm. about... That's that's his next target with the, with the World Cup. Now, if he's offered the All Blacks role, I, I it would take a brave man to bet against. If he's him offered the All Blacks role, he would take the All Blacks role. Of course, he would. Because he's a, he's a proud Kiwi, and and I think that's probably right. Because it is, I mean, England is is one of the most problematic because of the amount of pressure and financial pressure, and the need to succeed. But the New Zealand job is a different. Is a special and, and let's be honest, um, he's. In a very strong position to do so now. Although having... they've said, although they've said, um, because he's not indigenous at the moment, he's not there. They might not give it to him. And I, you know, if he doesn't get that, I, you know, as a coach, you think it might be nice to try the third one, wouldn't it? You do the the, the 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 trio, the South African one as well. That's the next one that's coming up, and see if you can get. Because he was saying two. Two wins and a draw might be uh, might be a fairly useful CV, but not 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 with not not just on CV terms. The experience must be fantastic as well, because I'm sure that whilst it's not the same as playing, the coaches must get such a lot out of this as well. Yeah, it's an incredible amount, and I think I think obviously that the experiences of these tours it must have been. You know, he, he he copped some flack in the in the New Zealand media, yeah. and obviously I th- I thought he handled it brilliantly. Yeah. You know. With his uh, red nose in the in the press conference after the after the third test, but yeah. you know he can he can come away from New Zealand with his head held high. He can go away and take some time off before preparing his Welsh Welsh side for the November. But the thing that I gave Warren Gatlin most credit for on that tour was actually being willing to change. Yep. Because let's be honest, let's let's remember he went into that tour and said Owen Farrell. Um, and Johnny Sexton and Dan Bigger are my three fly halves. Yes. They are three fly halves, and I am not looking at any of them as a number as a number twelve. He realised that in order to challenge the All Blacks the way that he felt they needed to be challenged, he had to make a change, and that was probably forced um, when there was I can't remember which game it was, but Sexton had to come on in the midfield alongside Farrell. And that worked, and it, and it was perhaps the spark that gave him the thought that that was the the change that he needed to to cause the problems. And that axis has worked well. Mm. It was challenged defensively, as everyone knew it would. But on an attacking front, you have to ask the All Blacks defence questions, and it worked. And I have to give him credit for that. The rest of the coaches, um, 
must also have learned an awful lot from that tour. Um, Andy Farrell, again, he's been involved in four of the six, the last six yes. defeats that the All Blacks have had, um, which says a huge <laughs> amount about him um, as, as a character and as a personality within that squad. Um, and I think that the majority of them, the learnings from that, and that's where as a Scot again, whether it was going to be Jason O'Halloran uh, involved in the Scottish environment and being able to go on the Lions tour or Gregor Townsend, I think we've maybe missed a little bit of a trick there from a Scottish perspective. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions. OK, so we've uh, chatted from a Northern Hemisphere point of view. I don't know how one-eyed that seemed. I hope it was as... as uh, well, I, thought, I think it was re reasonably objective. But now we get a chance to a balancing uh, point of view because I'm really pleased to speak to the former All Black uh, winger and uh, Leicester player, Scott Hamilton. Hello, Scott. Hello, oh, good. Good, Bon. Good. Yeah, mate. Um, what do you think were the initial thoughts of the New Zealand public before the Lions went and how, how has that changed or has it changed, you know, after the series? Um, <clears throat> I think... As a, from New Zealand's perspective, in terms of the whole Lions experience, you know, everyone is looking forward to it. I think it's been a great, uh, it's been a great tour. The game's been really close. Um, in terms of uh, rugby side of things, I think um, everyone thought that the All Blacks were, 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 would probably handle this quite comfortably. Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the All Blacks were a bit of on Saturday. Um, unfortunately, things, they didn't have the chances that they, they created and and the Lions, you know, did what they did. They were, they were, it was a very gutsy performance. They hung in there, kicked the off, and did what they needed to do. And Cam Murray was, well, we're going to say the result, but a draw. I'd say it's still a result. I would take it from their, from their point of view. Scott, I tell you what, what, what um, I was surprised at was the fact that the Lions, you know, they created probably as many chances over the three tests as uh, as the Kiwis. Um and I hadn't expected them to come anywhere near that. Uh, do you think uh, that changed that 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 had to, that had any effect on the way that New Zealand approached the tests? Or um, I think you know, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was sort of a there was a three test series, but every game was totally different. Really, it was almost yeah. um, you, you couldn't even yeah drawing parallels between them. It was um, you know, obviously the second test with what happened there and and. But I think eh, the Lions, I, I was probably a bit surprised. I thought they were, were like everyone probably did, they were going to have a bit more um, dominance up front yeah. than what they ended up having. Um, and, but, you know, like I think you talked about with, with Farrell before, but the, the defence from the Lions is outstanding. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that they were able to put the All Blacks under pressure. All Blacks had opportunities, but when you've got guys coming out of the line at you, you know, you've got to be very, very... Um, at the top of your game to be able to take those chances and the All Blacks weren't on Saturday and therefore only got across the line a couple of times when they probably could have done five or six. Hi Scott, Rory Lawson here. Um, just talking about that that defensive shape and pressure that the Lions put on in the in the first and second test and looking back to Saturday's deciding test, the, the All Blacks averaged over five tries per game last season. In the three tests they've only scored uh, five tries against the Lions in this series, Lions scoring four uh, themselves. 
looking at the first 20 minutes of the game on Saturday, everyone spoke about the importance of that and just thinking about the the Bowden Barrett uh, missed penalty after two minutes and then that Savea Guddle and drop uh, when the, with the try line beckoning. How important do you think that was in, in the bigger picture? And should should the All Blacks really have put the Lions under more pressure and potentially put the game to bed in that first half with the number of opportunities they had? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, even after all this missed opportunities, I was still comfortable that we would, um, you know, at the back end, like we always have in the, in the back 20 minutes. Um, I thought we would we would get the, the points that we were, um, you know, to win the game. But you know, to credit the, the Lions, they, um, um, you know, the, the, they tried their best to keep it at the tempo they they wanted to. Um, you know, making sure that um, you know there was a couple of injuries, and you know, just making sure people are getting breathers and 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 that. And they, you know, to be honest, the Lions are actually. We're, we're, you know, they, they scored more points than the All Blacks in the in the in the second half, and which doesn't happen very very often at all against an All Black side. And you know, you could argue that um, they almost finished finished the strongest. Scott, um, it, it's been a, a long while since anyone, uh, you know, had the courage to say that the gap between the uh, Kiwis and the Northern Hemisphere teams has closed appreciably. But I. Uh, and, and you'll be able to have seen this with with Leicester. I detect in the Pro 12 and the Premiership over the past two or three years a, a willingness, a much greater willingness to play with the ball in hand and to try and move the ball a bit more uh, akin to to Super Rugby. Would I be would I be right in in that, or is that an illusion? No, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, I mean, the games are still you know, still. Totally different beast, but you know, having said that, the the weather and and plays a big factor in that. But I think the more so, certainly in the Premiership, is the the promotion fashion that that happens, and uh, in my opinion, the negativity that that brings from certain teams trying to um, pick up bonus points rather than you know in Super Rugby, you don't if you finish last, you finish last. Obviously, it's not you know your business or your um, brand is not on the line for having to drop down a league. Mm-hmm. So you can afford to try it around, but I mean, you look at things like Connacht a couple of years ago. You know, they played a brilliant style of um, mm-hmm. of rugby, and you know, and won won the league. And and I think you know, Saracens have evolved a fair bit. Um, Wasps obviously play you know a lot of width in their game. Um, and I think at the end of the evening, you can't. It's very difficult to play like that throughout the whole season. You know, just January and December is a tough time of um, year to play it here, but. At the end of the day, the final football's played in May, and you know generally it's a, a lovely, wide open Twickenham, for example. And, and you, you know, if you've got enough and you've got the players, at the end of the day, rugby's about scoring more points. And I think um, it's good. It's certainly good for a spectacle. I think that it's starting to happen. I mean, obviously people see the All Blacks model and perhaps like with football and they try and follow the Spanish or whatever model. Um, I think you, you, you've got to obviously have the players, but it's it's something that you know there's a lot of New Zealand coaches um, over here as well, so they're clearly going to be bringing their that influence as well. So, I mean, I think yeah, it's definitely definitely happening. Um, but having said that, you know, like you said, you mentioned Tigers and, and certain certain teams as well. The the traditional power base of of up front and scrummaging and all that sort of thing is is always going to be there, but. It's just having the, you know, having the ability to 
of the right marriage between them. And, and Scott, just just picking up on on that. Obviously, you, you speak about Super Rugby. Like I love watching Super Rugby. There are, there are elements of it whereby you know defences are questionable. It's the absolute trifest and brilliant stuff. Is uh, I'll come at you with a little bit of a double barrel question here. Is there a little bit of an argument that says that style of rugby um, and the lack of exposure to the pressurising defence that the Lions put on the All Blacks, and coupled with the fact that the the All Blacks wanted to play. Is there an argument to say that they overplayed in in the third test, and that actually could have led to their downfall? Um, you know, they made they made twenty one um, errors or twenty one turnovers in in that third test, which is so uncharacteristic of them. Um, and the, and the second part of the question is with regards to Steve Hansen's report card on his All Blacks across the three tests. What sort of grades is he going to be giving his team um, for that draw? Um. Yeah, I think in in terms of um, whether they played too much, I don't. I think you know if they had their time again, they would do do exactly the same thing. But they just need to be a little bit more clinical. But you've also got to remember that um, of the seven All Blacks that started the first test, I think there was four that were out um, in the back line that were out, um, out injured or whatever reason. Yeah. Suspended, and, and that makes a big difference as well. There's a lot of young guys in that in that team that, you know, even Leonard Brown, he still doesn't have a lot of test match experience as well. And, you know, those guys are only going to get better for that with Jordy Barrett and, and um, those types of lads. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with how they played. Yeah, obviously it was frustrating to see so many chances go to waste. But, um, and, and, and secondly, I think I think Steve Hinson will, I mean, obviously we gutted that, that they didn't win the series, but. I, I don't think, you know, I've seen lots of things about the, you know, the balance of power shifting and et cetera, et cetera, but I don't, um, I still don't see that as far as I'm concerned. The All Blacks are, are still um, the best side. But, you know, you've got to take a tip your hat to, to Warren Gatlin. He did, a, he did a great job of getting um, that team to a level where he got them now. I mean, the, I said before, beforehand that, you know, that, that Lions team has got a Lions team that's, um, that's gone. You know, gone on a tour for a long time. Certainly, in my opinion, a lot better than than four years ago. So they certainly had the players to do it, but it's it's not easy to get some. You know, there's a lot being made of it. Not easy to get four countries together and four different styles. And and I think you know you've got to the whole coaching staff done a, done a, a really good job. I think on our, on and off the field. Scott, uh, thank you very much. That's uh, fascinating. Thanks for your input. Thank you, Just Scott. No, worries. thank you. Um. Let's deal with the thorny subject. We haven't, we haven't brought this up. Uh, Owen Farrell got a chance to kick to equal the series. Should he have gone to the corner to go and win it? No. There was, a, there was still a minute, minute and a half left on the clock. Um, I think you've got, to, you've got to give yourself a chance of, of drawing, the, drawing the match and then go and win the game. I think the... The way the lineout had been, I think it was at seventy-four percent or something mm-hmm. across. You know, Jamie George had been under uh, pressure on a couple of times. Ken Owens had obviously uh, hadn't long been on. Mm-hmm. Um, and though you'd back you'd back the lineout in the in the latter moments, anything can happen. It makes it a lottery. Owen Farrell stepped up, took the points, even the match, and gave the Lions a chance of potentially I winning the, the test. I think the the main thing for me was there was enough time to gather that ball. Work the way out in an exit strategy that that might have fashioned either a penalty goal from long range or potentially a, a drop goal. Uh, so it was the right decision. As it turned out, it could easily have been um, 
you know, a, a match-winning penalty opportunity for Borden Barrett because of what happened. Now, there were so many questions about this. One, was Kieran Reid offside and in front of the kicker? Two, um, was the challenge on, on uh, Liam Williams' legitimate one? Or did he contact him in the air, which would have been a penalty to the Lions? Three, did it go forward? Four, was Ken Owens uh, offside because he played the ball um, accidentally or deliberately in front of uh, of Liam Williams? Um, you know, and, uh, well, there's another, another one which we come on to, but I think it, it, the thing is, there were so many variables on this. And when we went down there, I think it's arguable whether Reed was or wasn't in front of the kicker. So I think, you you know, unless it's definitive proof, he gets away with that. Uh, I thought that actually, as a challenge, I thought it looked to me at first flush, and even second and third, fourth, fifth and sixth, that it looked as though he was trying to go for the ball. Absolutely. If he if wasn't, he was very good acting, so I think he gets away with that in my book. But you say the ball didn't go forward. Is that right? Brian, I, I have to take a go. And I, I took an absolute hammering on Twitter because at yeah. the time, I actually I spoke about the officiating being outstanding. I think he got away with the fact he could go to the TMO by Kieran Reid's, let's call it clumsiness in there, albeit I, I actually felt it was a totally fair challenge. But and, and at the time, I thought Ken Owens was so close to the deflection mm -hmm. that whether he grabbed the ball or not, it was instinctive. Yeah. Um, and I and felt by, the ball And by the very nature, first. if it's instinctive... It can't be deliberate. Yeah, exactly. But and anyway, carry on. So I got a hammering saying he blatantly grabbed at it, he was offside in front of the ball, blah, blah, blah. But I went through it earlier today in slow motion again and again and again, and the ball did not go forward. So he yeah. just dropped it straight so, down. So Liam Williams had his back to where Bowden Barrett had kicked it from, yeah. had his back to Kieran Reid, it hit off his left shoulder, mm -hmm. but off the front side of his left shoulder. Right. And But the fact that Kieran Reid hit him to a level whereby he ended up on the lion's side of the ball, yeah. made it look like it was okay. forward. At best, on the from an All Blacks perspective, it went sideways. Yep. However, I think it went marginally backwards. And so Ken Owens, theoretically, would have been fine to catch it. Yep. On reflection, it could have been play on, but I felt that the referee, Roman Poit, dealt with it incredibly well and the outcome was fair, arguably. Because, funny enough, you're the only person that I've had, I've, I've heard put this forward and I'm going to have to look at it again because the one law that people didn't take into account, as far as I can see, either in commentary or in a lot of the social media posts, was law 11.7, which was if you are in front of a player who knocks the ball on and you deny an advantage to an opponent, it doesn't have to be deliberate. That can be uh, accidental. And if that is the case, it's a penalty. And to me, if that ball went forward... That that law applied, that is, yeah. and that is a penalty. Also, um, Roman Poit was—I don't know—I don't know whether this was a, a conscious thing, but he was quite clever in the fact that he should not have been reviewing that uh, under uh, present protocols unless he could find a way to bring in foul play. Uh, and obviously, the Kieran Reid challenge, seeing whether it was foul play, given the opportunity of a second look at it, and Sam Warburton, I think, you know, helped in his helpful discussions, which is what what good captains do. And believe me, you can have bad captains who who annoy referees so much that they won't, they won't listen to a word they say and actively uh, go against them. They, might, they may not say that, but they do. Uh, and because he was able to go and review that, he came to what he thought was, a, uh, you know, the right decision. However, 
that wasn't the reason New Zealand did not win that game. They lost, they, they, they'd lost a chance to win because they missed three sitting uh, sitters as opportunities in the try scores in the first half. And they didn't ever think to me, and this is 2007 all over, although they didn't have 20 minutes of possession this time, they never seemed to think that they might drop a goal. Does this not occur to them? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's something they practice a whole lot. Uh, if, if I'm being honest, I, I, I don't know. But, you know, I, we, we can pick that game to pieces uh, for days and weeks and months to come, to be honest. You can, you can look at the Savia Gado, you can look at Barrett's missed penalty two minutes in. But actually, if it was the Laumape try uh, from the crossfield kick that was reviewed to the TMO. Um, he was asked to see whether the scrum half had knocked it on a couple of rucks before the crossfield kick from Barrett. Um, it was actually Cody Taylor, the hooker, that went in, and I felt he knocked that on, but it wasn't reviewed. That because, yeah, because when they were saying the scrum after, and I was thinking, they did not, and there's no way that, and, then, and they showed three perfect passes. I thought, why on earth did they even think look of, at it, the, yeah. of look at that? But as you say, it was, it wasn't, it was a receiver, but it was a playing man. But it wasn't the actual scrum yeah. half. The biggest argument for me, and I, I, I never claim to be a scrum expert, would be the scrum that came off the back of Poit's decision yeah. with 30 seconds to go. And the yeah. fact that New Zealand looked of the upper hand, I, I think Wyatt Crockett might have been coming in on the angle. Yeah. So it's either, for me, it was either a penalty to New Zealand or a penalty um, to the Lions um, for, for that because they looked to have the mm-hmm. upper hand. The ball came out the back. Roman Poit didn't look like he wanted to referee it, and he actually let a number of things go in that game, particularly at scrum time. Reese Webb picked up, and the counter-attack was on, and yep. arguably you could say that was a Lions opportunity to, to snatch it. But look, it was, it was part of the drama. It was part of what made that third test so interesting yep. and had us all on the edge of our seats. Um, there was a hollow finish to it, but in the grand scheme of things, it was a Let's wonderful test Let's go to the, test hollow, the hollow finish. Should there have been... A provision because they'd had to write it in to the uh, agreement, and presumably, as this agreement has to take into account all three um, hosts over 12 years, it has to be done right at the beginning. So they couldn't have gone back retrospectively and written this in. But they, I tell you what, it might be in the next 12 months. I guarantee it one. will be. I guarantee it will be. Because as a player, as a player, wouldn't you want? I, I, I would have definitely wanted a definitive result. I would have backed myself and said, right, I want extra time here. I would. There is not a player in the 46 players who were stripped and ready to play on Saturday afternoon in that third test who wouldn't have wanted an outcome. Mm. Because you saw it afterwards, you saw... You know, you saw um, Kieran Reid on one side and Sam Warburton on the other holding a trophy from either side, both both squads together. A great picture to sum yeah. up what it what it is to play rugby as a game, um, and particularly at the top level, you saw the respect there. But at the same time, you've got to find an outcome. Borden Barrett said afterwards, "Give me ten minutes. Give us another ten minutes to yeah. find an outcome of this game." Yeah. And neither team would have, uh, you know, they they would much rather have died what. Uh, died finding out than died wondering as to what might have happened because yeah. it's the, it was a very, very strange feeling after the game. And, and in, in some ways, it, it, you know, it, took away from, it took away from what was a magnificent achievement by the Lions because to even get to that point against the best team in the world with only six weeks' preparation was a fantastic thing. And if they could have gone that, all right, you are risking the, the agony of the... 
the ultimate agony of losing a test match, but but to not have the chance to have the ecstasy, which would have been, you know, fulsome, total, is is something that as competitors, I just think, you know, players and, and managers and, and coaches at that, at that level or any level would have really wanted. And I understand why they couldn't have it, but I just felt... I, I understand. I, I just don't want it to take away from the achievement and, and how well they'd done, you know, a scratch side against against the best in the world. Oh, absolutely not. I, and for me, like, nobody's going to say for a second that we didn't have a cracking test series between the All Blacks and the Lions. I think it's a learning for future tours potentially, but what are the chances? I don't know what the ch- what what the odds would have been on a on a drawn series. Certainly, you know it was it was thirty or thirty five to one on a drawn game, let alone a drawn series. So Tom um, Shanklin, Tom Shanklin, I accused him of sitting on the fence and getting splinters somewhere. You know, painful. I heard it, he but, said he, a draw. but he actually said a draw. He said a draw. Uh, but I, I want to ask Tom if you're out there, te- text us or go on Twitter. Tell him, did he put any money on it, mate? Because. Um, well, we we just didn't believe that we we thought you were just trying to get out of answering, but as it turned out, you were you were the only one. You were the only one who got that right. Anyhow, um, I tell you what, uh, I think it's time now to just switch off the lines for a second uh, because we can speak to the uh, well, the only female recipient of the Pat Marshall Award, uh, and that shows the Rugby Writers uh, Award for Player of the Year, Maggie Alfonsi the England World Cup winning flanker. Maggie, hello. Hello, Brian. Uh, hi, I'm with Rory. Just very hey, quickly, hey, Maggie. Um, would you have wanted extra time if you were a lion? Most definitely. Um, I, I think I just listened to hear you both talk about it. I think as a player, you, you want a, a clear result to end a, a huge test series. And I think even there was a risk that they could have lost that, that final test and I think you still would have gone for it. You still would have gone for detention extra time with the hope that there's still a chance that you could have won it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really hard for players. But like you said, you're watching at the end and you can just see a lot of them sort of not quite sure how to react. You, you know, do, yes. you, do you celebrate? Do you, do you look at it in disappointment? And I think um, I'm just surprised there wasn't that clarity beforehand and how a lot of the players potentially didn't re- realise what would have happened if, they, um, if it came down to a draw. But, well, Sam Warburton yeah, actually said he was getting ready for extra time. I think he, yeah. he thought... But I just, I'll tell you what, as I said, all these agreements are written 12 years ago because they have to be the same right. for all the, the host countries, so that's why it never came up. But anyway, let, let's go to something else. 30 days now only, and the clock is counting down because I've seen it on the, uh, the Women's Rugby uh, World Cup site mm-hmm. until uh, the Red Roses uh, for England and everyone else uh, dons their boots in Ireland... For the Women's World Cup, how I've watched every World Cup, Women's World Cup from the very first start, and I have seen an appreciable uh, improvement in quality each yeah. time. Is that going to be the same this time? Most definitely. I, I think uh, you know if you think about all the the, the previous World Cups, um, I just think women's rugby has just gone more professional in the sense that you know we look at the England women's side and majority of the players are professional athletes. Um, you know, look at all the other nations as well. Sevens have taken a bit of a grip on, on women's rugby, and, and a lot of those players are also professional, and they're mm-hmm. in the 15th and 7th game. So what you're going to see come World Cup uh, in August is some competitive rugby. I mean, normally, whenever we think about the Women's Rugby World Cup, if I'm honest, you always usually say it's going to be an England or a New Zealand 
um, winner at the end of it. But I think now you can look at the World Cup and you go, wow, it could be possibly Canada. Well, look at the, let's look at the pools because it pool A, Canada, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Wales. You've got two major teams there. And, and Wales have, have improved. Hong Kong, obviously, difficult for them. Yeah, Pool B, yeah. England, Italy, Spain, USA. USA, big yeah. team, so you've got two sides there. Pool C, Australia, France, Ireland, Japan. Now, that, to me, looks problematic because Ireland have improved enormously. France have got a very powerful set of forwards, always have done. I've not seen enough of Japan to know how they'll turn out. But Australia based on their seventh performances, if they can augment that, that to me looks like the, you know, the uh, cliched um, uh, pool of death. Yeah, I think that pool is probably the most competitive one, I think, out of all, all three of them. Um, if, you, if you talk about Japan for a second, I mean, what's great is the first time in the Women's World Cup we've had two Asian sides, never been, been done before. So to see Hong Kong and Japan come through is brilliant. Um, Japan have just recently done a tour over in Europe um, they lost two close games against Spain, but they beat Wales. Um, Wales did build a bit of a younger side, but they will be an interesting side to watch, Japan. Um, you know, you can't count out the home nation, Ireland. So they're going to be, um, I guess, at their very best as well. And then France, a really typical six-nation side who are um, always, I guess, play up to their very best when it comes to World Cup or Six Nations. Um so I think that pool is going to be really interesting. I mm. mean, you, you can't count out pool A as well when you've got teams like Canada who are currently third in the world and then you've got New Zealand who are second in the world. That's going to be quite interesting about who finishes obviously top of that pool. Um, and I think England's pool is an interesting one. Um, teams they've, they've all beaten before. I think their last test uh, against USA in their pool will be the most interesting one just because it will give them a bit of, let's say, a real physical mm -hmm. challenge um, to allow them to progress through. But... Yeah, it's all very interesting. I think Paul C's are probably going to be the most close and competitive one. The uh, the venues, you've got uh, the Dublin and Belfast uh, venues, the university settings for yeah. Dublin and Belfast, but you've got the Kingspan as well, which yeah. is, is, is coming to, to play. Do you know what the ticket sales are like for this at the moment? Is there any indication of advanced sales and how yeah. well it will be supported? So far, all the all the pool games, the, the venue has sold out. So all those wow. games, to my knowledge, have all been Amazing. sold out, which is brilliant. I think they've also requested for extra seating. Um, the, the final uh, and the, yeah, the final at the present. That I don't know the knowledge of, of what the ticket sales are currently there, but at the moment, I know it's going really well because there's so many people um, across the world who are really interested in attending that, especially with the fact that um, the international women's rugby uh, series that took place out in New Zealand went very well because you got to see England do really well and New Zealand and Australia and Canada. So I think everyone's very aware that it's going to be a very competitive World Cup. So you kind of want to be there, especially if you're in, in, uh, in Europe. I think it's quite easy to get over to Ireland. Hi, Maggie, it's Rory here. Um, Hi, Rory. Just with, with, give us a bit of a breakdown as to how the, how the pools are going to work out. Obviously, um, is, it, is it the top team in each pool goes through the, to the semi-final and best second placer? Yeah, you've kind of tested my knowledge here. So, yeah, it's the top... Uh, top team in each pool. So what happens in the Women's World Cup, very similar to the under-20s um, uh, men's uh, tournament, there's no quarter-final, so mm -hmm. it's a semi-final and then final. So it'd be the top team that takes you to the three, and then the next second um, best in two of the pools will go through. That means that means some big teams are going to go out straight away, aren't they? There, the there is. Yeah, so if, if, if those of you remember, so in 2014, um, Ireland did incredibly well beating New Zealand. That's and as right, a result yeah. of yep. Ireland beating New Zealand, it meant New Zealand 
didn't progress through to the semi-final and finished fifth, the first time they've ever made it to a final. Um, so that potentially could happen again. I'll be intrigued if it did, but you've got Canada and New Zealand in their pools, a good chance they'll probably progress through um, in, in theirs. And you've got, obviously, uh, England in pool, pool B, which I think there's a good chance, obviously, they'll go through, but then I think it's going to be a tight one between them and USA. And then I think, yeah, Pool C's got an interesting uh, clash of teams, but I, I think you, you could be looking at um, France, Ireland. I, well, I, I don't want to call it. It's too, too early to call <laughs> it, but it's going to be interesting because there's so many good teams at the moment. Um, and the semi-finals, you know, once you get past, as you as you both know, in a World Cup yeah. situation, once you get past the, the, the pool knockout stage, anything can happen. So... Um, and Maggie, I know that I know that you're still fit as a fiddle and would be more than capable of, of dominating another World Cup. But um, from, I'm sure you're I'm sure you're still inc- incredibly close to the majority of the, the girls within that squad preparing. How big a shift has there been in the professionalism with the players literally turning professional um, and 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 their shift towards that that daily routine that prepares them for this and how how strong a position is that going to hold England and compared to, to those who aren't perhaps professional coming into this World Cup? It's going to be huge. I think we've seen the change already. You know, they went on to win a Grand Slam, Six Nations, um, and that made a big difference because it allowed the players to have more time together, more contact time, because what used to happen before is that they'll come together a few weeks before um, the start of the Six Nations tournament, which realistically isn't a lot of time. Um, where now they're in, you know, on a regular basis every week training together. So you can understand combinations, you understand your teammates, um, you also get the opportunity to rest because prior to them being professional, you know, a lot of these women will be would have been working uh, full time as well. So you know, you've got some who are plumbers, you've got some who are teachers, some are police officers. So trying to balance that as well as um, trying to be the very best athlete that you can be really challenging mm-hmm. um, so we've seen the difference with the Six Nations that went on to, to win uh, win it and become Grand Slam champions and then obviously when they went out to New Zealand for the International Women's Rugby uh, Series again they, they they beat Canada they beat Australia and then they beat New Zealand who were at the time number one uh, in the world and now England are number one in the world because they've got all that support I think what we want for the future of women's rugby though is it to be across the board I think what's great is that the England women's rugby team the Red Roses are setting the trend now and I think other nations will follow yeah um, I, I, because, I tell you what because it is great for the teams that are that are pro or you know virtually semi-pro now but you, you really need out of the 12 teams to, to close that gap as soon as you can don't you because otherwise they you know, it becomes a, a tournament where you can identify players, I'm sorry, teams that are definitely going to go through and, and no one wants that. Uh, I fully agree. You know, I think you, in any sport, you want it to always be competitive and you don't always want to think just the teams with money are the ones that are more successful. Yeah. Actually, you want it to be a fair, even um, playing field. And I know, you know, I, more than anything, I want all the other nations to get um, equal support and equal money to ensure that every player can be the very best for the tournament and always... Um, you know, you are judging players based on their ability rather than what financial support they can get. But at the same time, look, I'm so pleased that England have got that support. And like yeah. I said, what it will do is encourage other nations to, to support their, their women's 15 side as well as their 7 yeah. side as well. Well, I'm sure we wish all the, uh, all the contestants the best of luck and best of luck for a successful tournament. But when you see the girls, because you'll see them before, before yeah. I do, can you, you give them my personal best for their, uh, for their forthcoming challenge? 
most definitely. Rory, can I give them your best as well? Absolutely, Maggie. <laughs> Scotland aren't there, so... Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Maggie. Please do. No worries. Bye. Cheers, Bye. Maggie. The best thing I can say about um, the, uh, the women's game is if you watch it now, and this was not always the case, you soon or, or almost immediately stop looking at the fact that this is played by a different sex and you start to think that wasn't good enough or that was a good move or, you know, they did that right or they didn't do that right. There's, you don't have to make any allowances, you know, for, for gender. Uh, and it is a different game, but uh, in, in some ways it's actually a more attractive game because it's less cynical, uh, it involves less stoppages, the scrums are better and they don't kick as much. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm delighted that the... Uh, and I'm surprised as well, pleasantly surprised that the venues have all sold out. Yeah, that's great news, isn't it? it and is and, news, and yeah. fantastic for the players, fantastic for the event. Um, I, I think on the whole, it will be a, a brilliant uh, tournament. And, you know, Maggie touched on it there, just how competitive the, yeah. the top end of the tournament in yeah. particular is. And yeah. you, you, you touched on it, the, the gap will need to close between the bottom teams and the top teams. But at any World Cup, you look at the Men's Rugby World Cup, it's, it's the same there. It's going to yeah. be a long time before you can get... You know, sixteen yeah. or, or twelve uh, teams in in the women's case, all competing at the very top end. But I think it's going to be a cracking tournament. And um, you know, August in Ireland, you don't know what sort of weather you're going to get. But, That's um, one of the problems. Maybe but, let's hope it's not. I mean, August has given them the the best chance they've. Absolutely, um, I, I think it'll be a cracking tournament. Well, time to speak to someone who never had any problems with the weather where he coached. Um, the former Fiji sevens coach now works with the WRU in a consultancy role. It's uh, Ben Ryan. Hello, Ben. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Um, don't want to talk about sevens, um, but Good. do want to talk to you about the what was the what was the thing that impressed you most about the Lions' effort down in New Zealand on a technical basis? Well, I, I think obviously they progressed really well over those five weeks, and you can see they got a good bond. I thought the defence was was their defining part of their game. It was it kept the All Blacks at bay, uh, forced them into some errors. I uh, thought their line speed uh, was outstanding and you know showed their showed showed their aggression for how they wanted to play the game. And um, I couldn't have I wouldn't have I've seen the results go in the way they did, but you know it was it was a fascinating three test match really. Uh, it just shows. Roy and I were saying uh, the length of the tour allowed the emergence of a back three, which was largely by chance, I felt, uh, in terms of certainly, you know, the, the, the full-back, um, but then allowing both Elliot Daly and Anthony Watson to make significant challenges. If, uh, from a coaching point of view, if you don't have that number of games, will it still be possible to, to do it in the way the Lions have always done it uh, and find combinations that just... Just work because players put themselves forward, or or, or it would it be too difficult? No, I, I, look, I think it. I think it's entirely possible. It, it does depend on your your philosophy and your outlook on how the, you want the team to play. And if you know it's too convoluted, too multi-phase, too thick a playbook, then it's obviously going to take time to to get that sorted. But it was a pretty simple and effective way that the Lions had chosen to play, and and then. You know, that back three was picked on form. You know there were some injuries that 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 forced their hand a little bit early in the tour, but it was uh, it was ultimately whilst the All Blacks back line was getting hit with various injuries, the Lions were starting to find some real form as those Test matches went on. And 
and and you know Anthony, I won't mention Sevens again, but he 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 was pretty much won the Junior Commonwealth Games single-handedly when he was playing for England, yeah. and with Elliot Daly there as with his gigantic boot as well, that's just yeah. another added benefit of having him there. Plus, plus obviously, Liam Williams at fullback. I mean, I thought they were terrific and a real positive of the tour. Hi, Ben. It's uh, Rory Lawson here. Um, just, just picking up on what you're saying there, you spoke a, a lot about the, the back three guys. Um, slightly, obviously, contrasting styles between the, the All Blacks and the, the Lions. But within that Lions squad, out with the back three guys, who, who impressed you the most on tour? And, and perhaps who surprised you the most out of that Lions squad um, in their development, um, particularly in and around the tests? Do you know what? I didn't honestly feel I was surprised, particularly by by anybody's uh, anybody coming out from the shadows and suddenly being right at the, at the forefront. Because I suppose I've seen a lot, particularly the English guys. Yeah. I've seen a lot of them growing up and, and coming through the system, and, and so the likes of Elliot Daly and Anthony Watson are outstanding rugby players. And actually, when you look at you know with Marrow and uh, and and Carl and. And Marler and all the other English guys there that are so young, it's it's an, it's it's very exciting for any English supporter really to see these these kids because Elliot and Anthony they could be a hundred cappers. I don't want to, you know, um, <laughs> jump jump the gun too much, but they have got that quality, and and both of those can play in a number of positions. Anthony mm. can play at 11, 14, 15, or thirteen probably, and Elliot, well, there's not many positions he can't play in the back line. So. Um, I thought they, they were they were outstanding, and Jonathan Davis in the midfield. I'm not. I, I think everyone thought, thinks he's a great player, but he stood he stood out and mm. was in those all three tests. Both sides of the ball was uh, was a bit of a talisman, and yeah. um, you know, he should be very proud of his performances. Yeah, his, his class shone through in the particular in, in the test series, didn't it? He's, he's he's played the last six tests for the Lions, which which amazed me. Wow. Um, but no, just uh, I'm just flipping over now to to the New Zealand side of things, um, and and a, a slight detour from talking about the All Blacks in particular. As someone um, with significantly more uh, knowledge of Fijian rugby than the masses in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously as a, as a Scot, it, it hurt to see Fiji beating beating the Scots in in their test um, earlier in June, but. What is there in place to to protect the Fijian talent from from going to New Zealand? Um, and added to that, we've we've just spoken to Maggie Alfonsi about the potential gap in in the the women's World Cup between the top teams and the rest. How far off are Fiji from being able to to close the gap between the very top teams in the world and themselves? Yeah, I was I was at the the, the Scotland Test match, and you know. Fiji thoroughly deserved to win that game. I think there was a, a certainly a bit of maybe a, of a mental hangover from from Scotland's win over Australia and then to lose their you know two key players, the Lions, plus a few other changes, probably added to all of that. However, Fiji over the last three or four games, they've beaten Italy, beaten Scotland, uh, beat Tonga at the weekend to get the first qualification spot for the World Cup for Oceania. They are moving forward fairly rapidly over the next couple of years. John McKee's doing a terrific job. He's brought in some really clever operators in the strength and conditioning. And World Rugby helped with all of that. You know, they, they helped these these um, so-called emerging nations. And I don't think it's fair to call Fiji that. But in 15's terms, it will be a shock if, if Fiji get into the quarterfinals in the next World Cup. But it's entirely plausible. 
And when we have Absolutely. world-class players like Leonie Nakarawa <laughs> and Josh Tuisova playing for Fiji, those two will get into pretty much any test side in the world. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. and, and just starting to get some depth everywhere, starting to, to scrummage really well. And really the only position that worries me is that is the depth at, at fly half. And behind Ben Volavola, we've really got a very sketchy um, next in line. And that's the next point of development. And the reason that happens is probably coming on to your point about New Zealand. All our best ta- talent in the Pacific they might be fly halves or, or, or midfielders or wherever, but then they go overseas and they only really ever get stuck on the wing or at fullback, occasionally in the midfield. So we've got some probably some very good teenage halfbacks and key players there, but when they go overseas, they, they don't get played in those positions and, and we end up losing them. Uh, ben, the, the fu- yeah, sorry, Ryan. Sorry, can I, can I just ask you a question from David uh, Bent? said, which of the countries... Um, because all the home unions have been touring as well as the Lions, which of the countries um, do you think will have benefited most from their summer tour? Oh, well, quite interesting. One, I, actually, I know we it? did. A, I know we did a fine job on um, sticking so much hospitality in front of the Scottish <laughs> boys the week before the first <laughs> match. It was a great plan, actually. I don't know if it was if it was actually thought out or not, but it worked really well. They would have loved. I mean, I know the Scottish boys loved their time in Fiji because. Fiji is absolutely crazy about rugby. They they would yeah. have done everything they possibly could to make them feel at home. And, absolutely, um, yeah. And and you know it, it's so good to see top quality sides like Scotland and, and Italy obviously came across as well. And uh, so I think I think Scotland, you know, they've had an amazing eighteen months, and, and Gregor's going to do brilliant things with them. And it was great that they beat Australia. And I think they probably out of all the teams, I would say they benefited the most this, mm-hmm. this summer. Because I thought the I thought Eddie Jones would have been pleased with the with the Argentinian trip. I think he only wanted. I spoke to him before he went, and he was only looking to try and fix maybe two or three positions uh, as for people coming forward with genuine contending claims that he didn't know about. And I think he probably got an indication that he might get that. Uh, Wales, um, just it was it was more difficult to say with Wales and Ireland. I felt. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, the, the the England tour was a fairly short one, but that first Test match was, you know, was a, was an amazing Test match, really. And yes. some of those young kids did come through remarkably well. I don't want to be sort of putting dampeners on it because they were really good, but I just thought that having watched the Jaguars playing Super Rugby all year and um, that, those guys were tired, and it was a um, it was a tough couple of Test matches for them. And as you know, and I don't, it's hard to to go down to Argentina and, and, and win and they, they must have been delighted with that and they I'm sure Eddie's had got you know he probably can go two or three deep now in each position which uh, if we're honest about it is something that England probably should have done for the last 20 or 30 years the biggest playing population in the world well ever you know, since the most resources Ben you're right ever since the, the, the unfortunate byproduct of the 2003 World Cup and all the retirees was that it's taken until now to get the cycle right, to get the number of caps uh, and the seniority uh, and, and uh, emerging youth and get the balance demographically of the squad right for the first time I can remember since that time, and that's a long time ago, in, in the next World Cup is the England side going to be right demographically. And that's the challenge going forward, to do what New Zealand... Uh, nearly always do, Australia certainly do, with a really small population, playing population, is to get the the amount of, of caps right 
and keep that continuity going so you don't have a side falling you know, completely off a cliff uh, in terms of experience. And, and it takes you another four World Cups to get to back to where you should be. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think I mean, one thing that, that perhaps needs, does need some, some thought is some of those guys had only played a handful of, of uh, premiership starts. They're not actually, yeah. they've got almost as many caps in test matches yes, as they have premiership yeah, starts. And, yes. and if you're not careful, you know, we, we've got to allow, get this somehow, allow these, the clubs to allow these young Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Enough. And if, you know, if we don't allow that over the next four or five years, then you'll see the New Zealand players at a similar age, and we've just seen their under, under 20s do magnificent things at the World yes. Cup. In four years' time, those guys will have 100 super, cap, super rugby games under their yes. belts, their best ones. So then they'll move away again. So we, ha- we do have to be trying to future-proof this system. And it's a tough, it's a tough one. So I know, I know all the internal machinations with, with Prem rugby and English yeah. rugby, but, but for the greater good, it needs to be sort of thought That out. is a really, really good point. It's one I've not considered, actually, in terms of how this gap keeps opening up. Um, really, really important point. Ben, absolutely fascinating as usual. Um, thank you very much. Cheers, Ben. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. You know, I like going to Ben Ryan because he's he's got so much experience around the world, and he just tell you what, he sees things from a point of view which you don't all, or you don't necessarily consider yourself. And he's always he always has something to say that I think actually I should have thought of that, but I didn't. And that's 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 to my benefit. It's, now, it's bigger that. picture, isn't it? It's Absolutely. bigger picture thinking. But on the flip side, you go to any owner of a Premiership club. And you tell them, you know, get the eighteen-year-old in there because he's oh, good they enough. W- they, they, you know, they they want they want to bring an all all black with forty caps over who's thirty years old and maybe seen as not making yep. the next World Cup with them. It's it's the pressures of that, and you know, Brian, you spoke about it earlier yep. when we talked spoke about the Lions side. When money comes into play and the pressures of of you know, premiers- winning the Premiership or surviving the mm-hmm. Premiership or making Champions Cup rugby or survive, you know not being relegated, when that comes into play, yep. the most coaches, most owners just think, well, under- where, can, what, understandably, where can we plug the gap? Absolutely. Understandably. Uh, let's um, just turn to a Welsh point of view, because we've not uh, had one. Warren Gatlin got quite a bit of stick uh, during this tour for picking uh, Welsh players who, some said, shouldn't have been there, um, some with more justification than others. Very pleased to say we can speak to former Welsh and Lions, uh, number eight, Michael Owen. Hello, Michael. Hi, Brian. How's it going? All right, mate. Um, well, I, I thought I thought it was a touch of class, actually, um, for him to for Warren to appear with the the nose on at the end. He made a point, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. Yeah, he's had a bit of. Uh, <laughs> I think to be fair, he's, he's had unfair stick throughout the the tour from the very start. I think he's um, he's a type of coach. I think who you just got to have faith in because you look at his record and it's probably it's pretty much unprecedented. He's been yep. successful ever. He's gone. I think like you've got to be coming from a pretty um, exalted position to, to give him to give him stick. Did you um, prior to the tour? Did you envisage the, the, this this sort of result, or um, have they exceeded like, your expectations? The tour, touring party, mm. you would have said like, it was a really exciting party. You would have said it was like the best like Lions team probably ever to leave uh, these shores. Um, but it was because the, the like New Zealand is such a such a good side. That was what you worried about, and whether the Lions had enough time to come together. But Gatland's, I would have said it from the start of the tour, he's the right man. He seems to get uh, teams together and get them to click, and they, 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 they find out how to wait to win, and that's exactly what the Lions did, and they almost almost came out with uh, what would have been a monumental series of victories. 
Hi, Michael. Rory here. Hey, Rory. Uh, how's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks. Good. good. Um, just just picking up on a couple of things uh, with with a Welsh focus, and you know, uh, Sam Orbiton. Obviously, there was there was um, lots of speculation about who the captain of the tour and the best o- o- uh, person to captain the tour would be. Um, Sam Orbiton surely put that to bed, um, okay. showing his experience in all three tests and. Perhaps most of all, with you know the, a minute to go in in that final test and managing to have a word in in Roman Platz here. So, uh, firstly, the the importance of him within that Lions squad as, as someone who will know him better than most. And then, secondly, Toba Faletau in, in your old position at number eight. Uh, a lot of people suggested that that Billy Vinopol and Owen Farrell were the two guys that the Lions couldn't afford to lose. How big a uh, how much did he step up to the plate and perform for the Lions? I think firstly with Sam Warburton, he's been like his reputation. Obviously, he was very high anyway. It's just been enhanced further. I think like the way he took not being picked for the first test was was absolutely like um, amazing. Really, I don't think as many people who would have been able to like have actually had that sort of reaction from people must have been disappointed for him not to be figuring. Um, and then the way he came back and obviously his captaincy was superb, but also his performance in the. In the, the third test, he was absolutely mm-hmm. immense. Like the Lions, if you look at the first test, he struggled at the breakdown, and then in that uh, in that last test, Sam Warburton was absolutely immense. He just turned New Zealand ball over for fun, and he was uh, he caused them a, a ton of problems. So he, he was absolutely immense throughout the tour, I think, in, in lots of different ways. Um, and then Toby Faletau, for me, I think what would have been really exciting and what might have tipped the series in the Lions' favour was if Billy Vanapol had been fit. I think I would have picked Faletau from the start and maybe played him at six and chosen between O'Brien and Warburton. That's interesting because I I was going to make this point, and this was nothing, there's nothing against Toby Faletau at all because Faletau does things that Vernipola does, but I think vice versa as well. I just think that Vernipola's ability to make yards after he's been tackled is, you know, or or after he's been the initial contact, he's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Toby Faletau is just like, he's just, he's a perfect back forward, if you like. I think he's just, he's, he's the type of player. He'd make he'd be one of your top tacklers. He'd be one of your top carries. He's got a, he's got a bit of th- like the way you score that try in the, yep. in the second test. He's yep. got a bit of movement and a bit of pace, and he just he sort of got he's got a touch of class. And I just think he's just he's an excellent player. And um, like I say, if they if Billy Vanapol had been there alongside him, I think that would have been an even more formidable back row than yeah. than it was. Michael and Roy, can I can I ask you this? The entry of the Cheetahs and the Southern Kings into the Pro Twelve is now. Uh, I don't know if it's a done deal, but um, it's been heavily mooted. Um, and for these things to get to this stage, there has to be more than a scintilla of a possibility about this. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, for me, I think it's hugely exciting. I think the Pro 12 is a competition um, that probably does need a boost. I think Rory would echo my thoughts in saying that it's been when you go and play, in the, when you leave the Pro 12 and go and play in the Premiership, it's a bit of a like wow moment because you play in like awesome stadiums every week. You play in um, like all the sponsorship, everything's just just in line, and the clubs seem to be a little bit more. You've got a little bit bigger budget. So you've got the gym is better. Everything just seems a bit bigger and better. Certainly, it was the case when I moved. I think the Pro 12 has caught up, but it's still probably a little bit behind. But I think it's just really exciting. I think if I, if it was if I was in like running the Pro 12, I'd like to see them try and expand it further and see if it can get. A team from Germany, a team from I don't know that's been spoken about, maybe a Georgian team, and try and really make mm. it like a, a massive, like multinational uh, event, and try and see if you can expand it that way and, and broaden the, the rugby appeal as well. 
yeah, I think from my, from my perspective, it it is very exciting. I think the the timelines now that they're working to, if they're talking about 2017-18 season, then things are going to have to move pretty quick because you're turning a 12-team league into a 14-team league. Um, whether they go, I know that two pools of seven have been spoken about speculatively um, with with the addition of these two South African teams. Um, I think it. The, the Pro 12 just has to find its identity again and then drive things forward because for a number of years, until they brought in the, the qualification um, for the Champions Cup, um, it, was, it was one whereby, you know, I, I know when I, was, when I was playing at Edinburgh, you'd rarely play against the top Irish international players because they'd be te- kept for the Heineken Cup as it was then. Um, I do think it needs a breath of fresh air and I really hope that this is it. Uh, the, the difficulties obviously are, are logistically the fact that it's probably a 10 hour flight um, down to either Port Elizabeth, Elizabeth or Bloemfontein how that works logistically and, and, and the well, team's no, travelling there's, there's no time there's no jet lag which is good the, that is a positive I mean it's really got the cost element but then again as a player I would have thought if you're swapping the environs you know of a let's face it um, West Wales Scotland <laughs> Or Ireland in December, January, February, for Bloemfontein and Port Elizabeth. You might do that. You might swap that. Yeah, I think you know. I, I was I was down in Newport last weekend and got sunburned. I got two <laughs> days down there, but it's not often you'll say that between September and May. So um, look, I think I think uh, as a player, it's it's an exciting addition. It's a new challenge. It's it's a different environment to go down to. As I say, the key thing for me is that things are sorted out quickly in this. If it's going to happen, season 2017-18 most players who haven't been on the Lions tour or international tours will have well will be well back into their pre-seasons now and they still don't know who the first games are going to be against um, as far as I know and that that for me is is the key factor when you're preparing for a season what is the season shaping up to be um, and this is something that I think the powers that be just need to get in place so that everyone can get excited about it mm-hmm. Michael um, just finally Scarlet's tremendous surge unexpected for for many people um can we see are we going to see more of the other welsh uh regions uh, next season the season after yeah i think if you look at it, I think like, one of the encouraging things for the, the welsh region i think the ospreys have uh, been like fairly consistently strong certainly in the pro 12 um over the last uh, like three or four years the scarlets were absolutely superb last year and like to go to to win the uh, pro 12 beat in Leinster and Munster away in the semis and final is a is a massive uh, step forward for them and the, the style they played as well was superb and they, both of those regions had a lot of like homegrown talent as well which I think is really exciting for for Welsh rugby and you look at the tour as well and it gives a bit of depth um, the Welsh the Welsh tour this summer gave they had two good wins so it's looking like there's a bit of depth there which will challenge some of the um, established players so that's really exciting and in terms of the Blues I think they're building nicely and obviously. It might take a little bit of time, but the Dragons have got, uh, obviously, with a new ownership model, um, but they've got the potential to, to move forward and start competing. So it's, uh, I think it's fairly exciting time for, for the Welsh uh, regions and hopefully for the Welsh national team. Yeah, it could be all that and uh, lots of sun, which is even better. Thank you, Michael, as usual. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Right, it's now time to, uh, and here for the final time, actually, from another member of the team behind the team. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team.
Supported by QBE Business Insurance, we've been looking at the team behind the team across the series uh, of the, the podcasts. And you can tell by the way that this Lions team performed, the fact that they uh, were able to go for the full 80 minutes of every test, the fact that they had relatively little time uh, injured, only the two uh, injuries uh, keeping players away from the tour, that the team behind the team really did their job this time. And today we are talking to the 2005 uh, Lions physio master Stuart Barton, and he kicked off by describing a normal day on tour. Typical training day means an early start for the, the medical team where they do the injury management starting usually about 7 o'clock. So we've been up since 6, had your breakfast, and you get players in at usually 6, 13, 7. 7 o'clock till about 10 is your ongoing management of players that are carrying your knocks and keeping them um, that have got a lot of rehab that are going to be maybe missing training. And then you've got this priority where training's been called, say, 10 o'clock to, to or half past 10 training where you've got all the strappings to do so there's typically the two C physios and we're all doing all the strappings for training and getting them ready for for training training is usually 10 30 till lunchtime and then back on the bus um, um from 12 30 lunch and then back after lunch um they're back into more treatment more treatment for and then getting ready for an afternoon session which can be say three o'clock till half past four and then at half past four till um, half past four. Yeah, usually dinner's usually called about seven o'clock, so you often got some hydrotherapy to do, um, and then got ready for, for the dinner, and then after dinner you've got more treatments till about 11 o'clock at night. So that's a typical well, training day. And you, so you, so what, you get to bed about midnight? Mid, most midnight. Most days you got to bed the day. You never got up and went to bed the same day. <laughs> right. And that was every day. And that... Um, Extends um, into what for a match day? A match day is often can it's often the easier day, believe it or not, because the guys that are are ready for match day they don't need anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're typically ready, so you don't do anything too aggressive. You don't want to do, be doing deep massages and stuff like that at that time. So that on a tour environment lets you. These are the busy days, so these are the days that you can get at the other injuries that are missed match. They're maybe going to be fit for the next again week, so you can spend a lot longer with these guys. And um, and, and uh, but sometimes there can be a training session as well. If it was a midweek side, might be having a, a, a training session. So that's why it was. You almost had two medical teams running: one with the midweek squad, one with the the the, the, the test squad. Well, that's an important uh, aspect to keep in mind, isn't it? Because it's peculiar to Lions tours, and when you split. Uh, Almost a squad in two. You've you've got players moving between the two camps, haven't you? So yeah. their treatment sometimes overlaps or has different priorities. Oh, I know, and it's 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 difficult because you get some. You've kind of got a bit of insight that you know they're they're, they're thinking of making changes. The players are asking you, do you know stuff? And you just have to say you don't. <laughs> and and the coaches in Luke really need him fit. You know this kind of thing, and. Uh, but you've got to fit in, a foot in two camps, but it's, it's hard because these, these guys, they train hard, and if they're on the bench for one, and uh, if they've been in the test squad and they're on the bench for the midweek squad, they know they can come on in 10 minutes and play two games in four days, you know? It's yes. Um, travel is always a feature mm-hmm. of Lions Tours, usually every three or so days. Uh-huh. What problems does that cause uh, you? Well, if you've got people with backs, these, these are big guys, 
big tall guys and um, not only have they got different beds in one hotel to the next hotel can have different beds you've then got the travelling in and out of the airplanes mm-hmm. which was always the way we travelled Clive had it all organised so Louise had it all oh my goodness she had it organised it was just private it was all there was no check-ins it was just there was a bus wait straight to the, the, the plane basically mm-hmm. for the internal flights um, but there wasn't any many long bus journeys but at the end of the day you are still sitting around on a bus from the hotel to airport um, and these guys that's the thing they, they, they stiffen up so quickly these big guys and that was the thing that if you've carried guys with necks that have been hitting I mean, you know it's like when the front row these, these necks get sore and they get stiff sitting around yes. and the big tall guys are back they don't like the sitting around um, so that that was always the, the biggest being plus the, getting all the medical equipment and all the strappings mm-hmm. or do they still have duty boys? Yeah, I like that. Ian McGeekin loved having duty boys. That was always his big thing. These are all traditional things, and I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. But um, with the advent of the kit man and the kit man going ahead, the two kit men, yeah. it became less of a duty boy, but we still had them. Ian McGeekin always liked that. So. Uh-huh. Um, after, what's the routine for players after games, um, You know, as far as warm downs, um, ice baths, assessments and so on? Yeah, we it was oh, it was gosh it was it was coming it was well into it by then it was the, the ice bath and um, everybody had to have their ice bath and then they'd have to come out of the ice bath and then onto the used to have stations so they'd have a massage for a recovery massage a, a leg drain so they had the legs up the wall for draining lactic acid then the next group would be in the ice bath then the next ones would be in a on the bikes, the recovery bikes. So they're using groups of five or six. Mm-hmm. And um, so they have five, ten minutes in each. So then change the next lot going to the massage couches. They go from massage couches in the ice mm-hmm. baths and they all rotated round. So mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it never stopped. And oh, I get it. And of course, you've got guys getting strapped up and that. But mm-hmm. And of course, the players have to get weighed in, weighed out. So if they've lost three kilos of sweat in a game, they're not allowed to, they have to rehydrate before they can leave the dressing room. So three kilos mm-hmm. means they have to drink three litres. And it's like, oh my goodness, sometimes you just want to let these guys say, well done, you've, had a, you've just won a <laughs> test match. And, you know, but... What's, uh, is there a position which needs uh, the most treatment? Oh, I think the back row are always, they've got a high attrition rate because they're like, they're athletes like backs, but they've got the collisions like the forwards. So I will think mm-hmm. they're, they're the ones that seem to get the bad ones, so they're, they're digging for the... The, the shit diggers that are digging for ball, um, they get the big hits on the shoulders and a lot of shoulder subluxations, and but they're getting the side impacts. These are high velocity collisions that the guys are getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other sports have you worked in? How do they differ? Oh, rugby was always my sport. Um, I played rugby, um, so I, I, I knew what the injuries were like. Yeah. And I think it's always good to have other sports. I, I, was, I, I like football, and I'm living in Fife now, so we've got a lot of the golfers. Oh, yes. yes. So um, I've just uh, treated Colin Montgomery the other day, actually. But these guys, it's a different... It's a different. It's the same body at the end of the day, but just the mechanism of injuries that we're mm-hmm. dealing with. And uh, So you get all sorts of sports. Um, also, also, it's the mechanisms of injuries. Is the, but rugby, I mean, oh, there's injuries now that he didn't get years ago, yeah. you know. What, what what can you do with players? Because I, I know that some players um, will play when they know they've got an injury, mm-hmm. and some players will not play unless they feel absolutely 100%, even though 
you might say, actually, you can do, you know, you can certainly yeah. play half yeah. a game, 60 minutes or whatever. What can you do to persuade those people? I know, it's a good point. I knew when it was time to come out of international rugby, I'd done it for 12 years with Scotland, and you remember the Gary Armstrongs. Now, he's your junkyard dog, isn't he? He would just strap him up, I'm fine. And um, I I liked that era of, look, just strap it up, it's fine. It was easy to be a physio then, because they were always wanting to train, always wanting to play. And then laterally, I think we've we've created a very precious athlete Mm -hmm. who sometimes only wants to train if he's 100%. Yeah. And that's where, a, that's where a good captain, I think, and Greg's, uh, Greg Laidlow's a good captain at Scotland, keeping the rest yeah. honest. And over the, you know what I mean, when a good captain says, come on, you know, yeah. if we only trained on when we felt fine, we'd never train. Yes. And, and that's where physios have to judge it, is it okay, look, okay, that calf's tight, but trust me, it'll loosen up in the session. And that's where you have to have a good relationship that, that you said it would loosen up and it's worse, and that you break yeah. the relationship. So you sometimes have to cajole them along. But I remember... At the end, when I was, I'd done 12 years and 100 internationals, and there was, I'm not going to name them, yeah. but he was like, mm, I don't think I should train today, you know, and uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, we've created a very precious yeah. athlete, you know. When, you, when you're in a treatment with um, a player, it's a very personal relationship, isn't it? And I quite often used to have very deep discussions with physios. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your experience of that sort of thing? Yeah, you become close to them, don't you? And yes. you, you often open up about non non work things at all, yes. um, family things, relationship yeah. things, you know, um, and you get a very close relationship because it often is it's just you and them, and plus they've they put a trust in you that they don't want you to tell other players that they're maybe struggling with whether it's emotionally or yeah. or an injury. Yeah. Um, I remember way way back a player um, who got himself in a bit of financial trouble. Uh-huh. And he was wanting desperate to play, and and I knew fine well his neck had a serious neck, and he was he said to I have to play this weekend. I need that match fee and I need that win bonus. And I remember saying, he, he can't he? look at that neck. It's uh, look at the, the, the desk." And he was he was telling the coaches he was fine as far as the coaches was he thought he was fine. And I was I was in this um, predicament where you know. What does your charter say, the physiotherapist's charter, the ethics charter say on that? I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, I think end of the day it's a player's decision. You can um, only advise. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, I think nowadays, I think with medical legal, you would just say, no, you cannot play, and you would go to the coach and say, you cannot yeah. play. But at the end of the day, that's a player you've got the confidentiality and he you have to respect yes. that and that's why it's international sports different because normally a patient says that's confidential you cannot share information with anybody so you can't but with international sport or any sport when the coaches you have to now i think now the pressure in the game is that you would tell the coach look mm-hmm. the doctor would certainly tell the coach but i remember way back this guy was saying you can't tell me yeah. and, and he was wanting to but he to be honest, he, he, after one game, knew that it was crazy. Many thanks to QBE Business Insurance, who supported this podcast and the team behind the team, behind the British and Irish Lions. QBE are about building the strongest partnerships, one team and collaboration across multiple countries to give businesses the confidence to achieve their ambitions. Rory, um, this is the final show of this season, but uh, professional players... Uh, being the beings that they are, uh, some of them are now reporting for 
duty for next week. Can you just, uh, before we go, tell us what what the average player will be doing over the next few few weeks before the uh, season kicks off? What sort of sessions will be doing? Yeah, look, I, I think the average player will be looking to become significantly better than average because this is where you can make most gains as a player. Ultimately, you, the season is long, it's arduous, it is incredibly tiring. And the players typically love what they're doing, but the pre-season is your one opportunity to properly make some gains. And that's typically in the gym. Um, so you, 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 there'll be a, a heavy weights focus on things, building the body that's going to be able to see you through the next the next 10 months of the season. Um, and just let me stop you there, because I am aware that the weight sessions have changed out of all recognition from when they started. They were very standard, you know, bench press and, and so on. They're, they're adapted in ways... They're much more specific now, aren't they? Yeah, look, it's it's about it's about strength and movement. You've yeah. got to be strength. You've got to be strong in the positions you're going to be tested in uh, on the rugby field. You know, albeit you're still going to do your your core exercises. You're still going to do your squats, your bench presses, your bench pulls. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of power included. So you're going to be doing power cleans and split jerks and snatches at some stage. Um, and it will be position specific as well. So obviously the front rowers do a lot of neck exercises and across the board, you'll do your, your core stability work, mm-hmm. you'll do your joint work. There'll be a lot of prehab work so that... To, joint, to, joint work, is that just is that loosening? Is that yeah, it's movement, it's, it's movement, it's healthy movement because, uh-huh. you know, if you, if you do static weights, you're, you, you might move, the, you might lose the, the range of movement. So yeah. there'll be a lot of stretching stuff, you know, Pilates, yoga, um, and a huge, you know, you're, there'll be a lot of gym work done. There'll be a lot of a lot of work done uh, on the track uh, for the, the the speed guys, but that's across the board now. Mm-hmm. There'll be a huge amount of anaerobic work done, um, and that's you know that's anaerobic work off the ground. That's tug of war. That's strongman stuff. Mm-hmm. That's distance stuff. So you're building the engine that's going to get you through through the tank. Um, and then there's obviously the rugby side of things, which is a huge part. So there'll be conditioning games whereby you know you're going to be stressed hugely anaerobic anaerobically anaerobic and aerobically uh, but you're also up, I mean uh, do, do you basically say actually you've all got an aerobic base that's good enough or do they do they still do the the long the long set or do you still get given some some aerobic work uh, you you're not do you're, you don't do a, a huge amount of you know you're not doing 10k runs or yeah. or anything like that and the aerobic base comes from training the anaerobic a, a lot of the time okay. uh, but you know I, I remember my days at Gloucester whereby you know Brian Redpath as a former scrum half understood that the scrum halves probably had had to cover the most ground um, out with probably the fullback and and back three guys, but the most ground whereby you are making impact and passing the ball and and having to accelerate decel- uh, decelerate a lot. So he had us in in what uh, what we called the fat club, because you, you basically you know you're typically your you're bigger boys are the boys who put put on weight in the off season. Went back in on day one. You had your fat pinched. If you're above the threshold weight-wise or uh, the, the fat mills, you'd be in fat club, and it would be a 30-minute aerobic or anaerobic boxing or running or spinning session first thing in the morning before anyone else got in, followed by breakfast, and that's where you made gains. And I used to, I used to love it. You got you were in the condition, the best condition of your life. Uh, you weren't taking the physical hits of the weekend that take time to recover from. A lot of it's down to sleeping because the sleeping time is where you make most gains. Um, and you know what? The, the, of all the th- of all the things you describe, 
one of the things I would the, like, I played one year in the press layer, I, I didn't play as a pro, but the I wouldn't necessarily want to be a pro um, because of other things. But the one thing that I would like to have done would be to have seen how strong I could have been, see how uh, technically good I could have been, because always something I had to give. And in particular, when I played, you didn't have a chance to recover. You didn't have a chance to proper recovery things. How important is that? Yeah, it's it's hugely important. To, to be honest, I don't think people, the players now necessarily have great opportunity to, to fully recover because, yeah. you know, you typically get a four-week off-season. And by the time you've switched off, you're switching back on again. And believe me, when you're in that that squad environment whereby everything's a competition, you're being mm -hmm. measured on everything you do, speed tests over 10 metres, 40 metres, your you know, your your yo-yo uh, test uh, results, your bench press, your squat test, your, your jump for height test, your power output, everything is a competition. You want to be the best version of yourself. And when you're competing in positions as well, I never forget um, in, in a pre-season having to do a, a three-minute round in boxing against my my opponent and taking an absolute hiding, uh, as as he used to train MMA in the in the off season, um, and I didn't, and I only had one wrist. But uh, you know, it's the the the, the classic uh, cliche is that the first game of the the first preseason game you ever go into is the only time that you're at a hundred percent. From then on, you you know it better than most. You're carrying knocks, you're yeah. carrying niggles. You've probably not recovered from the previous week before your or, or the week's training before a game. Um, but I, I used to love preseason probably more than most because you were always testing yourself. You always felt like you were getting fitter. But the fitter you got, that the harder you could go, which meant that the outcome would always be that you're absolutely burst by the end of the week um, as it was. But it was a nice feeling and the togetherness that you get within a squad environment during that time to prepare for a season is really special. Well, Will Plant, uh, I hope that that answered your question. Uh, many thanks uh, to Rory. So just remember, when you're putting your feet up on the beach and you're enjoying the ice creams and so on, that some people, uh, the players who after all are at the sharp end, are putting the hard work in. Can I thank you all for listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact? In association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance, many thanks to my co-host Roy Lawson for joining me in the studio this week, and as always and throughout the series to our producer, Abby Patterson. Thank you all for downloading and listening to the past 23 episodes. If you didn't listen to the last 23 episodes, why? And make sure you do next season. Thank you and good night. <laughs>